when the flight crew needed to know what time to order their day to get out to the airport at the right time so that the flight would depart on time, they were told one thing, gear up, 8 o'clock. When they wanted to know what time they should orchestrate the arrival of the fuel truck, they were told, gear up, 8 o'clock. What time should the baggage be loaded? You can figure it out because you know that gear up is at 8 o'clock. What time should we put the passengers on board? It all mattered about the one phrase, gear up, is at 8 o'clock. What does gear up mean? And why is that the one time in aviation that matters? It doesn't matter what time you want to know before that aircraft takes off, whether it's loading the passengers, putting the food service on, putting the equipment on board, putting the fuel on board, having maintenance come out and then leave. The one time that matters is gear up because everybody can orient what they're supposed to be doing by that one time because gear up literally means that's the time of day when the gear cycles into the underbelly of the aircraft. That means all the chores are done at that point because now it is flying away. And so whether you need to know what time to be at the airport as a passenger or as a pilot or to load the luggage or to load the food or to take care of a maintenance item or to fuel the aircraft, the one time that you need to know is what time does the aircraft actually leave the ground, at what time does the gear cycle into the underbelly of the aircraft, and that time is gear up because it literally means the gear has been selected up. All the chores are now done and the aircraft is flying. You can figure out everything you need to know from that. I found out the hard way just how confusing that concept was when I transitioned from the world of aviation into the world of ministry. Over uh, a period of about a decade or so, I was privileged to lead approximately 25 different mission trips all over the world. And the one time that I clearly communicated to my team that obviously we needed to be in the bus, rolling down the road, going to the work site, your teeth are brushed, your bag is packed, you've had breakfast, you've made the phone call home, you've done all the things that you need to do, the one time you need to know is obviously gear up. And I found, it took me a number of trips before I realized this, that when I said gear up, and that obviously meant that all of the chores had been done and we are now moving down the road, that my team decided gear up meant that's when you finish your second cup of coffee, go back to your room and pack your backpack for the day. And that was very frustrating for me, and I didn't understand what the problem was. I thought I had lazy bums on my team who just want to linger over their second cup of coffee and then decide to go find their claw hammer when I said gear up 8 o'clock. And they decide that's when they go up to their hotel rooms to finish brushing their teeth and load their backpack. Well, who had the problem in that case? I had the problem because the normal usage of that term, the expected usage of that term, had nothing to do with actual landing gear. As crazy as that sounded to me, I was the only one that knew that gear up was actually referring to landing gear. Everybody else thought it was referring to their backpack. And they were right. I was the one that was wrong. I was the one that understood because of specialized training and experience that the phrase gear up meant something very different than now you can go to your room and grab your backpack and your gear for the day. Very confusing, friends. I'd like to share with you this morning by way of introducing a new series going into the holiday season where we're going to be dealing 
with some complicated things. We're going to be looking at some things that typically we associate as being negative things, but we're going to see from a biblical perspective how God has actually intended these things to be positive and to be used powerfully in his local church. And we're going to go into more about that next week. But before I can even mention those items, because I don't want to get started off on the wrong foot and a confusing foot, I need to discuss a term with you guys as a church that in our culture and in our society, and even in our church culture and church society and fellowship, we have a completely different understanding of what this word means than what we find in the biblical text. And in the time remaining with us today, even as there was a lot of confusion on my mission teams about, am I talking about your backpack, or am I talking about something that you've never experienced before, namely the gear going into an aircraft, this phrase is an incredible gift of God. This idea, this word, this concept is to be used powerfully on a regular basis in the local church, and yet we have actually prided ourselves as a church because we say this and I'll tell you what the word is in a moment, never happens here. And nothing could be further from what the biblical text says should be happening here in the use of this word. And the word is judgment. You're like, gosh, everybody knows that we pride ourselves on judgment-free zones. We go to gyms that say judgment-free. We pride ourselves on being a part of a church where we don't judge you. And you're welcome to come as you are. We pride ourselves that our schools are judgment-free zones. We, 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 the, one of the great evils of our culture, one of the great evils of our society, is that somebody judged you. That I was judged by somebody. That somebody confronted me with something that is different about me, that they think is wrong or evil. It doesn't comply to their standard of what is normal or accepted, and therefore I have been excluded. In fact, I have been condemned. I have been judged. We don't want to go to that gym and be told that we have skinny arms and a big belly. We know we have skinny arms and a big belly. That's why we're going to the gym. And so we want to go to the gym that doesn't tell us that. Now, what is the reality? We have skinny arms and big bellies. But woe to the person who judges us in that way. Woe to the church that actually confronts us about a behavior or a lifestyle or an idea or a topic that we hold to and we then are judged by them. And I, I, I mean, I've heard this in church after church after church, and our church included that. One of the things I love about River Church is that they don't judge you there. And what that means is what the commonly accepted meaning of the word judgment is, is condemnation. That's actually what we're communicating. We're saying that when I go to the gym with my skinny arms and my fat belly, that I am not condemned for being in that physical state. When I go to the church in my current condition of sin or lifestyle choice, that I am not condemned for that. See, that's a different word. That's a different idea. You see, because when we look into the biblical text, and we're going to have the opportunity to do that here in just a moment, we will find that the New Testament has an awful lot to say about judging. And for some of you who are familiar with your Bible and you've grown up in the church or you've had a chance to do some studying, then Josh, wait, 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 wait. I know that Jesus actually says, judge not, lest you be judged. So judging is a great evil. 
Well, did you also know that Jesus says, judge wisely, judge righteously, and actually gives us a number of instructions for how we are to judge well. There is a difference between the idea, biblically, of judging something and condemning it. Condemning is something that only God does. It is never our job in the scripture to condemn somebody for anything. That's not our job. We are not their judge in that sense. We do not condemn people. However, to judge and to judge well, there are people that we are absolutely supposed to judge. We will see in today's text that judging well, specifically a certain group of people, is considered an inestimable gift. It is a priceless gift. It is one of the ultimate signs of love and compassion and acceptance that you can possibly receive. And that there is also a group of people that we are never to judge. And so, when you look at the biblical idea behind judgment or judging, or the word judge, it really comes down to, and this is the clearest metaphor I can use, it's sniffing the milk. That's what judgment means. If you have ever brewed a beautiful cup of coffee and gone into the fridge and grabbed your creamer or milk of choice and dumped it into your coffee and didn't notice that it was chunky, and then raised it to your lips and did not notice that there was flotsam in your cup and then sipped it. It tastes awful. At that point, you then become judgmental. And you sniff the milk for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter how fresh that milk is. It doesn't matter when you brought it from the store. It doesn't matter what your mommy promises you about that milk. You are now a milk sniffer. I'm a milk sniffer. Everyone in my family is a milk sniffer. We are some of the most judgmental people you've ever met. It's not that we hate milk. It's not that we condemn milk. We like milk and cream in our coffee. If it's good milk, if it's good cream, if it belongs in the cup that which we have brewed. A better idea behind the word judgment that lines up with what the biblical use of the word judgment is discriminatory. Now immediately we think, oh my gosh, that's another trigger word. That we're not supposed to discriminate. Judgment simply means that we make a decision, that we learn, that we evaluate, that we discriminate, that we discern between something that is spoiled and not fit for the purpose for which it is intended, or something that is whole and pure and true and in alignment for the purpose with which it is intended. Judgment. Is anyone triggered? We're talking about judging today. And let me just tell you, this is a judgy church. We love judgment. We're going to learn today that judgment is one of the greatest gifts you can receive personally and as a church. And let me help you understand why. We're going to get over our fear of the word judgment. We're building a foundation today for the difficult topics that we're going to be talking about going into the holiday season. Ideas, concepts, and things that happen to us all the time that we consider to be negative that are actually gifts. And the key is understanding learning our understanding to match it to the biblical text regarding this idea of judgment. Judgment is not condemnation. Judgment is discernment. And there is a way that we are to judge, and Jesus makes it clear. Now, there are dozens of texts that deal with judgment in the New Testament, and I'm going to focus on one primary text today, and I'm not going to have a chance to, to discuss all the nuances of judgment, but that alone should help you understand that if judgment was forbidden, why wouldn't it just be like, do not murder? Right? That's pretty
pretty simple. There's not dozens of passages that tell us do not murder, just one. Right? Exodus and one in Deuteronomy, do not murder. Simple idea, simple concept. We don't kill people, right? We don't murder them. We don't murder innocent people. We don't kill innocent people is what that, is that phrase refers to. There is no such simplicity to the idea of discriminating or discerning or judgment. And we're going to see that in today's text. So if, if you study this topic, you'll realize I'm not hitting all the bases. We'll have a sidebar, and that'll be great. But I want to show you the home run passage in the Bible about judgment, where we get this idea that judgment is wrong because Jesus said so, and then actually see what he actually intends as we work our way through the passage. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Here we go. Do not judge. Perfect. Altar call. Let's go. Early lunch. Not that simple. Do not judge. He does say it. So that you won't be judged. What does that mean? He clarifies. Verse 2. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's what Jesus is saying in those first two verses. If you're going to judge poorly, if you're going to hold people to standards that you don't hold to yourself, do not judge. Right? If you're going to discern hypocritically, if you didn't put deodorant on this morning and you were judging someone sitting next to you for how they smell, Jesus says, do not judge. Keep it to yourself. If, however, you put deodorant on this morning and you are versed in the use of deodorant and you applied it properly and with due diligence and you are sitting next to one of your children who did not, in that case, you can then give fair discernment as a well-practiced deodorant user. Right? One would hope. Do not judge if you're going to judge poorly. If you're going to judge hypocritically, if you're going to judge holding somebody to a standard with which you are not familiar or versed or practiced yourself at all. Continuing. Because whatever false standard you use, that will be applied to you. If you do not use deodorant and you expect everyone around you to use deodorant to mask up your smell, you will be judged by God for your lack of deodorant use because that's the standard that you set. So whatever standard we set regarding deodorant use, that's the one that's applied to us, right? That's silly. That's so silly. But you get the idea. Do not judge poorly. Do not judge hypocritically. Do not judge requiring people to hold to a standard with which we are not fluent. Why, he goes on to say, verse 3, do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye. And look, there's a log in your eye. And Jesus calls a spade a spade. He judges, he discerns his listeners, and he says, hypocrite. There's a reason he's talking about this with his current people, right? They're holding people to standards that they don't hold to themselves. He calls them out. Hypocrite. First, if you're going to judge, right? First, if you're going to judge and do it well, he's now giving us some guidance. Take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
And then he concludes with this completely bizarre statement, Do not give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. And I'm telling you, right now, that verse is the key. We focus on verse 1, do not judge, and we don't read the rest of the text. And if we do, we just get a sense for maybe someone's treating us poorly because maybe they're a hypocrite because we have, you know, a little toothpaste on our shirt and they have a boogie hanging out their nose. Like, that's how we feel when someone judges us or is trying to discern with us or trying to element a correction in our lives. That's as far as we get in the passage, and we have no idea what what pearls and pigs and dogs and, and holiness have to do. But that is the very key to understanding biblical judgment, and we'll get to it here after we work our way through the passage. So Jesus begins by saying in verse 1 and in the first half of verse 2, if we were to sum up what he is saying, do not judge poorly. If you're going to judge, do it with the standard with which you are fluent. Do it with the standard which you have first applied to yourself. Um, and there are a number of examples to this. Do not expect someone uh, that you lend money to to be good with their money if you are not good with your money. Why would you expect them to do anything other than waste your money if that's what you do with your money and you just lent them some? However, if you have shown yourself to be good with money, then by all means you may lend money, expecting that you at some point be returned those funds. If you're good at the thing, if you discipline yourself with the thing, if the Lord has done a work in your life in this certain area, then by all means, it is a blessing if you share what he has shared with you. That is biblical judgment, not condemnation. The second thing he goes on to say in the second half of verse 2, right on down through verse 5, five is that he gets very specific about viewing other people's faults correctly by first dealing with our own. How can we see to remove a splinter from someone's finger if our arm is broken? How can we uh, see to remove a speck of dust, a mote of dust, the KJV says, from somebody's eye if we have a splinter or a log, he says, speaking euphemistically, in our own eye? First deal with our own stuff. First deal with our own logs and splinters and broken arms and problems and issues. Then... And only then, once we've learned something, have we the right to apply that standard or to share that standard or to bless somebody with what we have then learned. Here's a concept that I came across in my studies this week that really gave me pause, and I've been processing it for days now. And it is this thought. Since we're supposed to start with ourselves, what does that mean to actually reflect about our own attitudes, our own behaviors, our own personality, and how we handle ourselves, specifically in the context of a church setting, but even just in life in general. And I came across this thought idea, let me share it with you, that our childhood solutions to the difficulties that we had to overcome when we were children, the things that worked for us when we were kids, possibly have been brought into our adult life and are now the source of a lot of our problems. Let me say that again. We were confronted with a set of challenges. We were confronted with a set of problems. We were confronted with a set of difficulties, whatever they were, that we had to deal with as children. We chose a coping mechanism. We found something that lessened the pain in that area in our life. And then what is very natural is that as we matured and as we grew, that very coping mechanism 
that very way of handling life, that way, very way of thinking, has now created problems for us as adults for any number of reasons. Basically because our lives are completely different now. We have a whole lot more resources and autonomy and use of our time and money available to us now as adults than we ever did as kids, yet we're still relying on a coping mechanism that worked for us as a child. Allow me to illustrate. When we were children and we grew up in a stressful environment, filling whatever that stressful environment was, we learned at an early age that because of that stressful environment, it secreted adrenaline into our stomach and it made our stomach hurt. Now, we had no idea about adrenaline glands or adrenaline being dropped into an empty stomach and how that would turn our stomach sour. But as a very young child, in a very stressful situation, parents fighting, finances, whatever, divorce, we would say this, my tummy hurts. And everything changed when we said that. The stress level went down in the house, and we were now given attention. Oh, you poor thing. Nice foods were then provided to us, a quiet place to rest, and a preferred activity. It's magical. The stress goes up in the house. The adrenal glands excrete adrenaline into our empty tummies. My tummy hurts. And the magic thing happened again. The stress levels went down. The preferred food went up. The preferred use of time went up. The positive attention of the people that we love started pouring in. It didn't take us long because we are so very clever. But every time the stress level in our family life as a child began to go up, we couldn't say, hey parents, how about you receive some biblically-based therapy? Hey parents, how about I go get a second job and help delay or elay, uh, alleviate the financial stress? Or you know, mom, some of your childhood coping mechanisms you drag into your adulthood and it's really causing problems in your relationship with dad. Things that we didn't know, things that we couldn't say, all that we knew is that the magic phrase, my tummy hurts, made the stress go down and the preferred behavior go up and we got the attention that we wanted. It wasn't long before the stress started going up, our tummy was fine and what did we say? And as an adult, I'm not looking to going forward. I'm not looking forward to going to work tomorrow. You're a public school teacher. The children have Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday off. What are you going to do to them exactly to make them listen? Absolutely nothing. You are powerless. You have two long days ahead of you for which there is no hope. There is no remedy. There is no course of action. You are being held hostage by children that come up to your knees. And if they figure out that that is in fact the case, which some of them have, you now have an act of rebellion. And you've been teaching long enough to know that that's exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. Their little brains are filled with the time off that they're going to get to have playing Fortnite and all this other stuff. The last thing they want to do is apply themselves to long division. I don't care how you frame it. I don't care how many treats you promise. It's not happening. You're doomed. What will it be tempting to do tomorrow? Now, you know if you say that, all of your fellow teachers will hate your guts forever because you just turned a three-day vacation into a seven-day vacation. And maybe your tummy doesn't hurt. It was a coping mechanism that worked very well as a child. It started out in reality and in truth. 
but being dragged into your adulthood is now a lie. There should be some discernment there. There should be some judgment there. An innocent behavior that started that was effective as a child is now something that could cause you to get in trouble with the union, definitely with your co-workers, and it's just flat out wrong. Take the law out of her eyes before we point at the, the splinter. Hey, I noticed you were late for church on Sunday. You called out sick for two days on a short week over a stomach ailment that was a lie. Right? That would be an example of hypocritical judgment. Oh, but you were late for church on Sunday today. Yeah, but Tommy, you, you called out sick and you weren't sick. A childhood behavior that transmortified itself into our adult life. You found out as a child, every time the classwork started getting hard and you didn't understand the long division, it didn't matter how cute your third grade teacher was or how many funny jokes or magic tricks he did, you just weren't hanging out with the long division. And it made you feel terrible. And so what did you learn? You learned that if you fell out of your chair, people start to laugh. You learned that if you made a gross body noise, people started to laugh. You learned that if you hucked your pencil across the room, people started to laugh. And honestly, the principal's office was better than long division. You, we learned from an early age when confronted with the pain of long division with which we did not have the tools to deal with, that by being the class clown, the long division went away and the preferred activity came. And it didn't matter what the other activity was, it wasn't long division. And so we became a goofball. A childhood coping mechanism that we've been dragged into our adult life, and every time the going gets tough, we won't talk about the thing, we make a joke. And after a while, it's not funny. After a while, our spouses are like all set with that. And what really becomes a tragedy is that our children begin to learn that coping mechanism as a young age because we just trained it to them. And the cycle perpetuates yourself. That kind of behavior, as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, that kind of evasive behavior where we do something silly or goofy and refuse to deal with the reality, that's wrong. We need to discern that. It needs to be, right, judged. It needs to be changed. Hey, you know what? That is a childhood behavior that was cute in third grade with long division, but that is not cool now as an adult. It's tax time. You don't get to make jokes about tax time. You don't get to make your poor spouse figure out all the taxes by themselves because you can't be bothered to learn that hard math. You need to talk with your spouse and figure out a way to deal with it. That's a new skill, right? Because we copy and pasted a coping mechanism from our youth. I spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. Like, holy cow. Because, like you, you know, there's some drama in my childhood. For me, the, the coping mechanism that I've dragged into my adult life is I was the firstborn, which typically means you're kind of responsible and, you know, more so than your younger siblings, you're kind of leaned on a little bit differently than you are your younger siblings. And I had a dad who was a real mean guy. And I found that if I was an overachiever, that if I did the thing to a certain point and then some, I might not get yelled at and or beaten. That's a coping mechanism as a child. So when I did a thing, 
it got done well because I was trying to avoid a certain set of consequences from a guy that was carrying his own set of pain, right? I'm just being very transparent. I'm just being very real. And how many of you have tried to work with me? And I see things that you don't. I pick up on details that you simply don't see. Kind of cool, kind of annoying. <laughs> it's a coping mechanism that was ingrained in me from a very young age to avoid a beating. And now it's something that I'm tempted to pride myself on. And areas like empathy and patience and kindness and gentleness, they're not my strong suits. I don't have to tell how to do that. And for those of you that haven't met me, now you know. I can be a pain in the rear. And it's not right. There's an area of my life where I need some discernment, where I need some judgment. Have I, have I illustrated this enough, what it means to remove the log and deal with the splinter, right? Dealing with possibly coping mechanisms that made perfect sense from our youth that are out of line now with our adult life, because let me resolve what Jesus says in that very situation. And for you, maybe it wasn't the sick belly, maybe it wasn't the class clown, maybe you're not the overachiever, maybe you're the penny pincher, maybe you're the rebel, maybe you're the fill in the blank. And I'm not saying wildly such. I'm just saying as you think over your life, you realize that when the going got tough, when you were a child, you did the thing, and you're still doing the thing today. Except now the situation is going away, and you are self-perpetuating logs in your eye that make it hard to see splinters in others. And what we need is discernment. What we need is judgment. Jesus says, here's how you need to think about judgment. You ready for this? He says, this is what judgment is like. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. The biblical idea of judgment hinges on that verse right there. Specifically, it hinges on one word, because he's talking about filthy things that in the first century church to a Jewish culture were known as being inherently filthy. Specifically, dogs and pigs, right? In the first century world, they were known as animals who reveled in filth. The book of Proverbs says, don't be like a dog which vomits and then returns to his own vomit. If you repent of a sin, actually stay repentant, right? It uses dogs to illustrate nasty, filthy, terrible behaviors. Well, what does that have to do with judgment? But for one word, and the verse turns on this one word, do not give what is holy. Something up here. Something pure. Something that actually dwells in the presence of God. Something that actually comes from God himself. Because that's where holy comes from, right? That is an egg we cannot lay. That is a cake we cannot bake. Holy comes from God, right? Do not give what source itself, finds itself, is defined by a close, intimate relationship with God to a creature that cannot appreciate it. Then Jesus says, if you don't understand that, don't put your pearls on a pig. Because pigs are just going to wallow in the mud with your pearls. So if you don't understand what I mean by saying don't give what is holy to a wretched creature, then maybe this will help. Don't give your best jewelry to a sow. You can dress it up any way you want. It's like lipstick on a 
same idea. Here's what Jesus is saying. Do not give God's ideas about a topic. Do not give God's thoughts. Do not share God's discernment. Do not give His holy, precious ideas about something to somebody who will not appreciate it. Because if you do, what happens? The dogs and the pigs will turn on you and trample you and bite you. Now that's a really harsh sounding verse. Is Jesus talking about people there? Well, he's talking about people that don't understand God. He's talking about people who are far from God. He's talking about people who haven't had an experience with holiness. He's talking about people who are blind, deaf, and dumb, or according to the words of Paul, dead to the things of God. Why would you confuse, torment, or condemn somebody for something to which they are blind? That's nasty. That's rude. That's irresponsible. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing, and he says, you hypocrites. Apply the standard to yourself first, before you apply it to others, and then the key to judgment, why it is such a holy, precious gift, is because when we apply godly wisdom, godly discernment, godly judgment to a situation, it is if we are sharing the very presence of God's thoughts, ideas, and, and words themselves. It's a gift that comes from outside of us. It's a gift from eternity. It's a gift that will be with us forever. It's a gift from the presence of God itself. Give that gift to someone who knows the giver. Otherwise, it's not appreciated. Judgment, biblical judgment. If you don't understand this concept, you will always think that River Church is a church that doesn't judge people, and that's a good thing, when really what you mean is River Church is a church that doesn't condemn people, because we don't. But is River Church the kind of place where we can take a holy concept from God that has made a difference in our lives because now I see that I treat people a certain way in my own leadership style because of a coping mechanism that I copy and pasted to avoid punishment as a child? And God has done a work in my heart about that, about, sure, you pride yourself on being a hard worker, you pride yourself on being observant, you pride yourself on being uh, an overachiever, but look what you're actually doing. Is that really what the Bible says about leadership? Or does the Bible say that those who are first among us should behave like the servants of all? Isn't that what the text says? Whoa! That's a word from God. And for someone like me, that's holy. And for someone to share that with me, am I mad at that person now? Am I irritated at that person now? Am I going to say to that person, you hypocrite? I can't believe you. I would embrace them like my dearest friend. Because they are sharing a letter that God wrote to me. They're just opening it up. Because we know the Lord together. So when it comes to judgment, whom are we to judge? And many of you are familiar with this passage. Let judgment begin, Peter says, with the household of God. Right? Why? Because we know the dad. <laughs> We have a relationship with Jesus. We've experienced His love and His power, and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we hand deliver a letter that comes from our Heavenly Father, and it's open, it is accepted for what it is, the Holy Word of God, to which we, for the most part, happily humble ourselves to. What happens when we try to have these conversations with people that don't know Jesus? 
Now we're hypocrites, and they're right. Now we're condemning them, but they just say judgment, and they're right. And haven't we as a church done that over and over and over again, expecting people to behave like they've had a radical, transforming experience with Jesus, and they don't know the first thing about them? And then we wonder why they get mad at us. It feels like we're holding them to a standard to which we hold all the keys and they don't understand how the game plays at all. That's terrible. We don't like that. We don't want to be treated that way. Does that help? Biblical judgment is a gift. Biblical judgment is holy. Biblical judgment is something that we share with a person who knows Jesus. So what do we do with someone who does not know Jesus? What do we share when we're at the holiday party? Does this happen to you? You're at the holiday party this week with your family, whom you love to death, and they are not saved. And they say, that effing turkey is the best bleep turkey I've ever had in my entire bleep bleep life. And they look at you, oops, sorry. Well, you're right, you vulgar piece of work. You should not, you know, swearing is an abomination before the Lord. No, that's not what we do. That's going to happen this weekend, right? Well, you've been going to church, now you're the holy roller, and your family's just being real. What do you do with that person? Do you apply them to a biblical standard with which they are only passingly familiar if they even know about it at all? No. No judging. We gospel them. Introduce them to Jesus. We gospel those who don't know Jesus. We don't judge them. Can someone come to church in any lifestyle you can think of? Fill in the blank. Are they welcome here? Every time, all the time, absolutely. Is their lifestyle, are their lifestyle choices affirmed here? Absolutely, positively not. What am I saying? We are open, but we are not affirming. <laughs> right? Because the Bible has things to say about the reality of sin. And we may not like it, we may not agree with it, but the Word of God is very clear. And the same Word that tells us about Jesus, that led us down a road that brought us to salvation and forgiveness of sin and filling with the Holy Spirit is the same word that says that sin is real. So is anybody at any time always welcome every time? Absolutely. But does the Bible have things to say about how we live our lives, never mind those who are on the outside? Yeah, it does. So what do we share with those who have not met Jesus? We share Jesus. <laughs> That's what we share. We share Jesus, not the standards of biblical behavior that we have come to know as life-giving. How are we doing? This is like heavy stuff. Like, are, are we doing okay? You tracking with me? I want to try and help us turn our minds around when it comes to this idea of judgment because we have these negative connotations with it and it's a life-giving gift that we share with those that we love. Because I've got some more truth bombs for you for the next few weeks. And if we don't get this one, they're just going to be like bomb, 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 bomb. And you're going to feel bombed out. Okay. Rather than encourage, 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 encourage. Let me wrap this up. So what are we supposed to do? And then you can bring your team back up here, sir. I would appreciate it. Here's what Paul says in Galatians. Here's what we're supposed to do. When we judge, we are to judge righteously. This is what John 7.24 says. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. It's not that we aren't supposed to judge. It's that we are supposed to judge well. Inspecting our own selves first. Allowing God to do a work of healing in our lives. 
and then sharing that work of healing with those that also know Jesus and would appreciate that work of healing. It feels like a gift, right? Because it is understood for what it is. For those who do not know Jesus, we don't judge them. We gospel them. We share the love of God with them. And what does Paul say in kind of wrapping up our time together this morning? How are we to relate with each other here in a church in a context understanding that judgment is a good thing? Judgment is a blessing. Judgment is a gift. What does this actually look like in the context of believers? Brothers, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Listen to this. Carry one another's burdens. Hey, I notice that you're struggling with a thing. Every time the conversation gets serious, you crack some kind of a goofy joke. Can I just be real with you right now? I love you like a brother. We've been attending church together for a while. We're in the same small group. And every time you bring up a prayer request, which is a serious prayer request, and we try to pray about it, you change the subject and laugh it off. Can I just share with you that when I was a kid, I found humor to be a powerful tool to escape me out of situations that were harmful to me? Can I carry your burden with you. I know what it feels like to use a joke, to use a fake illness, to have overachieving tendencies, to be a certain way with money, to be the class clown, to be the rebel, to be the cute one. I know what that's like. I've done that myself. And can I just share with you how the Lord has healed me? Can I come along beside you and carry that burden with you? Because I think we could be a real mutual encouragement to each other. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What does the church look like in the context of humility, acknowledging our own issues first, and then humbly initiating a conversation where we share God's word in a moment of prayer with someone who feels like they're actually understood. What does that kind of a church look like? Looks like a kind of place where God is supreme, where people are healed, where people would say, you need to come to River Church because you will be discerned there. <laughs> you will be judged there. And let me tell you, it's like a Christmas present. It fills my heart with thanksgiving. I feel so understood. It's not because my ways are being glossed over. It's because I am surrounded with a group of people who humbly approach themselves to me, having gone through the same thing. We look back on that coping mechanism that started to destroy our life, and now it's a Now it's like pure gold. Now it feels like a word from the Lord when it's shared in the context of a private conversation. Don't judge. Unless you're going to do it well. And then it feels like a Christmas present. That's powerful stuff, huh? It completely changes the way we think about that word. Maybe you've never met Jesus and you feel judged. Can we get rid of all that guilt that you're carrying and just introduce you to the one who can heal every wound that you have through the context of a local church with a bunch of people who are willing to treat you that way? be transparent and humble and gentle and come alongside and carry your burden with you. Can I introduce you to that guy? It goes like this.
Heavenly Father, I, it's been a long time since I felt understood. Heavenly Father, I have copied and pasted some stuff from my childhood, and now it's like a log in my eye, and it's in the way. Would you forgive me of what I now know is a sin, and accept me by faith as I take the name of Jesus as my own name, as I take a relationship with your son as my own relationship? Will you bring me into your family, understanding exactly what you're getting, knowing that you'll move from here? My promise to you is I will continue to repent and forsake all the things that don't belong in your family as you pour your spirit into my life. Is that a deal? In Jesus' name, amen. And for those of us who maybe have felt judged by a Christian church, this one or another one, or now we realize that we have acted in behaviors that possibly have judged others, can we just acknowledge that before the Lord and embrace what his word says and understand it for what it is and understand the power of what it means to judge correctly. Can we forgive ourselves? Understanding that now we've learned something that we can share with others who don't know what it means to be biblically judged and the gift that it is, yeah, we can go that way. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to spend some time in your word where we find stuff that we just can't make up. Father, we had no idea how powerful this concept can be, but it makes sense. What other effect could your word have on our lives? What other effect could your thoughts and ideas, whatever, what other effect could your holiness have in the life of our church other than drawing us closer to yourself when we humbly approach you and each other? Father, may River Church be ever more that kind of a church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.